organizations have a temptation to buy new technology and rely on that technology as a solution to whatever problem they may be facing, that's absolutely the wrong approach to take to managing compliance risk because you're actually fragmenting risk management between multiple platforms. So to the extent you can, you want to invest in technology that you can expand and add to over time to meet your evolving needs. Global companies face unprecedented risks and challenges in today's economy. To mitigate these legal and economic risks, companies are rapidly embracing and elevating the importance of robust ethics and compliance programs to promote positive corporate citizenship. On Corruption, Crime and Compliance, you'll hear from industry leaders and insiders about how to create effective ethics and compliance programs that will mitigate risks and maximize financial performance. Here's your host, Michael Volkov. Welcome, everybody. Glad to have you. Glad you could join us. I'm really always happy to have Alex Deployer from the Volkov Law Group join us. Uh, number one, Alex is our regulatory manager, but any of you, if you have the opportunity to work with them, it's an absolute pleasure and an incredible sort of expert in the area of Fed compliance. And by that, I say across all the L's, ITAR compliance, BIS compliance, e-commerce, and also our OPEC with the sanctions. So Alex, welcome. Great to see you as always. It's always a pleasure to work with you. So I'm glad to see you here. Hey, thanks Mike for having me back. And I brought Alex on because I thought he could absolutely help us with follow-up to a blog posting every year, you know, some posting on the person of the year and past they've had chief compliance officers, whistleblowers, prosecutors, in-house legal, and the person of the year about far and away, the story of 2022, from my vantage point, was the trade compliance officer. And for obvious reasons, I'll just tee this up a little bit for Alex because he works in this area. One of the, this past year was just incredible in terms of the focus on Russia and the Russia sanctions program and unprecedented. And I think what, as a result, that so many companies had to adjust to this new environment with Russia and trade compliance that it underscored, I think, for everyone to be aware of the importance of trade compliance and the importance to overall uh, culture and overall performance in terms of this. In other words, look, we had economic disruptions and dislocations caused by COVID. And then this year, you know, we thought we were getting it past all of that. And we were immediately challenged again by the global response to Russia's invasion and disruption. While to there yet again, see everyone's global supply chains. And I can recall just from my own perspective and invested losses as well in February 2020, that almost on a daily basis, I really mean this, a daily basis, we were in contact with clients, multiple finals, because things were changing each day because we had not only the U.S. government unprecedented trade compliance and sanctions issues coming up, but it went all the way to our allies, the G7, to our partners, all in Japan, Australia, and into other countries, to Singapore, and everywhere around the world, where everybody is participating in this effort. So just really understand 
see the overall importance of faith and science. So that was my sort of intro to you, Alex. From your perspective, as a long-time civil trade compliance expert, how did you see this whole rule? First of all, Mike, you hit the nail on the head with your designation of the trade compliance officer as the person of the year. Coming from a trade compliance background, I'm probably slightly biased, but notwithstanding that fact, it, it really is hard to overemphasize, I think, how much work trade compliance professionals faced over the last year. I mean, we emerged from an unprecedented global pandemic, which crippled international supply chains and immediately had to shift gears and focus intently on the application of sanctions regulations from multiple jurisdictions, not the least of which was the United States. And then you add to that the fact that the Deputy Attorney General designated enforcement of sanctions regulations of the new FCPA last May, and you have a recipe for what should be a new compliance imperative for corporations of all sorts. Yeah, and Alex, I mean, I mean, a couple of points that come to mind, but I know that the OPEC sanctions list changes regularly, but here you had a situation during February, March, continuing into the summer, the regulations were like a moving target. And you also had to be mindful of coordination across other regulatory regimes, be it the EU, be it one. And I mean, can you think of any experience and in the trade compliance area where things change so quickly? Yeah, it's, it's an unprecedented scenario. And I think, well, the unprecedented scenario here underlying the entire shift in the regulatory climate is that the sovereign nation chose to invade another sovereign nation, which we haven't seen in Europe in quite some time. So I think the entire predicate for the situation was unprecedented and required governments to kind of approach it on an incremental basis day by day. So we saw sanctions regulations coming out that would shift constantly. And I personally have never seen anything like it before. I remember when we had sort of global responses like to Iran, to Cuba, but to, you know, at least when the Crimean invasion occurred in acquisition, basically, it was a regime that was put in place, but it wasn't shifting on a constant basis and sort of a sectoral sanctions for the first time coming out of OFAC. And I, all that in dealing with that, and there were definitely issues that came up. Literally, there were days I felt we had to sort of, all of us working together, prioritize what's more important of the list of, let's say, 10 issues that are in thought standing, we would have to prioritize which one do we deal with first. That really became, you know, a hot button issue around February into March, really, where all of us nonstop were working around the clock and responding to client inquiries about sanctions regulations. And I think the difference between the invasion or the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and now is that this was a full-scale invasion. Russia had announced their intention mm -hmm. to go into the Ukraine and make it a part of the Russian Federation again. So I think the political response was much more fulsome than was in 2014 for that reason. Yeah. So now that let's call out the unsigned heroes of trade compliance officers who for many years, you know, I felt have always been important. But now I think what this sort of year demonstrated was how critical trade compliance truly was to your culture, to your firm's, you know, your company's operations, and to your overall compliance vote. And they will always be unsung heroes for this. I think people are not sensitive about how important trade compliance warring is to the data operations by the people it's building. 
and function. No, you're absolutely right. We've been recommending a number of practical things to clients in terms of prioritizing trade compliance risks in the new environment. And you've written eloquently in the past about the need for holistic risk assessment and prioritization. I think it's easy to be reactionary and take what I would describe as a kind of uninformed and overly aggressive approach to sanctions risk mitigation by adopting a bunch of stringent internal controls and totally frustrating the commercial objectives of the organization. But that builds resistance to clients overall, and that's not the approach that we would recommend at the Volkov Logger. We want the compliance function to step back, consider where the greatest sanction risk lies from a market exposure perspective, and then adopt measures that are reasonably designed to deter and detect infractions. You know, one of the things that I saw relied on to a much greater extent is unloser certificate. And now, if anything, going through this experience underscored, so for example, you may have a permissible export into Russia, but it may have depended upon a non-military use or something like that. And I saw that when a risk started to multiply in this area, it seemed like end-user certificates became even more important in this environment. Can you sort of talk a little bit about how you use those in the past and are people embracing this as a mitigation tool that more often yeah, so end-user certificates were really part and parcel of trade compliance practitioners' handbook, if you will, or, or toolkit for a while. But I think they became more important as we saw BIS adopt new sweeping restrictions with respect to Russia in exports that are controlled under U.S. export control laws. And user certificates are a great way to certify that the receiving organization is going to use that whatever item is exported in compliance with all applicable regulations. So for Russia... For example, now we have broad prohibitions that cover pretty much the entirety of the commerce control list. So you have to be careful about making sure that you, number number one, can a license for most of the things that you export to Russia. And number two, that they're not being used for military purpose, which would be contrary to some of the general prohibitions contained in the EAR. So export compliance certifications in the form of end-user certificates are becoming really important as a risk mitigation measure. But to me, that is also underscored the sort of multiplication of third-party risks. Because now, with our third-party risks, all of a sudden, there's even greater need with regard to Russia and sort of their regulations to verify where a third party is actually using, sending the products that they purchased, let's say, from a client. And that the use is for a permissible purpose. So all of a sudden, man, we have to impose for a seat and user certifications for the third party. And that to me, it's a challenge in all of us. I think in we're going to become better at mitigating risks in general. What do you think? I think so too. And I think it's, to the extent, it's not just a check the box exercise either, because I think it can be that if you allow it to be. But really examining the nature of who the client is and what the proposed end use is going to be and asking questions where there's some ambiguity if the client or if the ultimate end user comes back and says, for instance, I'm just going to use it for generic commercial purposes, that's not going to be sufficient. You really want to get to how they're going to employ the technology in question. So as long as it's not the check the box exercise and you're not collecting forms, just for the sake of collecting forms, then I think it would be an effective risk mitigation measure. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I think Alex, still, there's so many uses for this sort of third-party risk mitigation, up to for the end use topic that I think 
people are becoming, you know, sort of more used to the idea of getting this kind of documentation and then checking it and then auditing transactions that are further down the road to make sure that this documentation is secured. So I think we're spending an educational process and it was almost like by fire, patient by fire, because we were getting advice to people, which is, you know, at minimum, we've got to include these in requirements and people were rebelling so if anything their clients and others talk to in the industry recognize the importance of this did you have the same reaction in terms of this or yeah the receptivity i think too in user certificates and prioritizing drake and clients in general i think was driven home by the nature of the government's pronouncements saying that this is going to be a major not only a foreign policy initiative but also an enforcement priority for the government that really caught the attention of the clients in terms of saying, okay, now to the extent we haven't prioritized tracking plans before, we better start doing something about it now. Yeah. To me, one of the things that came to result of this, I hope that it's a lesson learned, which is that people are recognizing the importance of integrating the overall trade compliance function into the overall ethics and compliance function as well. Too often I've seen situations where trade compliance was sort of soloed and because it's thought of as a specialty in the compliance area. But it seems to me like there are a lot of general principles that still apply in the trade compliance area. There should be cross-pollinization, sort of knowledge that you can learn from each other in this area. And I'm just hoping that we see a movement towards bringing everybody together. What's your perspective on that? Because you worked in variety of settings and in situations. Overall, the new emphasis on trade compliance means that international organizations that have broad exposure really need to invest heavily in that area. So in the first instance, to the extent an organization with extensive activities abroad lacks a formal trade compliance officer, you need to invest in one. I mean, you can't possibly begin to fix things you don't know are broken to begin with. And second, you really have to look at whether the tools the trade compliance team relies on are effective in this new environment. So often I think organizations have a temptation to buy new technology and rely on that technology as a solution to whatever problem they may be facing. That's absolutely the wrong approach to take to managing compliance risk because you're actually fragmenting risk management between multiple platforms. So to the extent you can, you want to invest in technology that you can expand and add to over time to meet your evolving needs. And now there are so many great compliance solutions providers out there that have the capability of integrating sanction screening with third-party risk management, incident reporting, and trade compliance. Those are really the best solutions out there to give you the ability to envision the totality of your risks. So simply investing in technology overall is not the right approach to take. It should be a strategic approach. And that also makes all the sense in the world because well, if you're going to build a platform, don't have two separate ones, put one in and your third party and your sanctions lists in the platform. That's a and India. Also, I like your suggestion. Look, if you don't have a trade compliance officer, invest in one, but also invest in having the expertise in the organization. And I found that, for example, trade compliance officers who are very bold and fine strategies in formal, they can apply in different contexts, like FCPA and a corruption. You know, money one, things like that. We know that there are lots of common principles here. And I think your point, let's invest in the function itself is 
even more important, talking about bringing in people who share that expertise and also and work in, in other areas in terms of integrating the process. I think it's especially important, Mike, too, for chief compliance officers. Now is the time to acquaint your leadership team and the board of directors with their trade compliance responsibilities, because those are ultimately the people who have the responsibility for pushing internal controls or adopted. So it's going to be part of that has also compliance education in the field of trade compliance also has to be part of the parcel of that discussion as well. Well, let's wrap this up a little bit. If there's, let me just say thank you, Alex, but more importantly, well, not more importantly, but thank you to all the trade compliance people who we work with have the benefit of working with and who are colleagues. We thought performance in 2022 was amazing and should be recognized, hopefully by your organization as well. We try to recognize Alex as much as we can. You guys here in the smart bell worth it. We always say thank you to him every day. So that Alex and, you know, as you speak to colleagues in this field, I hope that he serve as a good spokesperson for their interests and also communicate for them nothing well gratitude, but leave more of an amazing marketing bit. Well, I think they, the fact that your blog post has gotten so many views speaks to itself, and I think compliance officers definitely feel validated, so it's great. Well, Alex, thank you again. This has been terrific. Thank you again for your perspective, and thank you for all the help that you do for our clients and for the industry. It's terrific, and let's, well, let's hope that this next year is still a good year for full compliance. And I see, by the way, not to you know, we're seeing a lot of activity and spoken about this before relating to China, and it looks like we're getting ready for a difficult deal with China. So there's never a rest for the weary. No, there definitely isn't, Mike, and we'll keep abreast of all those developments with all of our clients. And it's a really good time to be involved in trade compliance. It's an industry that's not going to go away anytime soon. Fantastic. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be back next week with another episode. And We'll have Alex staffing the next few weeks on other interesting issues that have tried. Thanks again, Alex. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, the best way to support the show is by subscribing on your favorite listening platform. To learn more and connect with Michael Volkov, go to volkovlaw.com. 